defines good as commendable, excellent, just, and virtuous. In the Olympics, we just watched them on TV recently. If you were a, a good athlete, you'd probably finish in the medals and run fast enough to get first, second, or third. If you're a good child, you'd hopefully do as your parents tell you. If you're a good worker, you'd show up to work on time and perform the duties that you were assigned to do. But what does God say about good? Well, I want to share a personal story of my own. About 100 years ago, when I was trying to get into dental school, I was a college student. And one of the things that you have to do as a college student, if you want to get into dental school or medical school or veterinary school or any of the graduate schools in chemistry and biology, you have to take a subject known as organic chemistry. And organic chemistry is the only technically upper-level class that you have to take in order to get into medical school or dental school. All the other ones, first-year biology, first-year physics, first-year calculus, first-year English, have taken two years of chemistry. And so organic chemistry professors are known as the gatekeepers in, in college because they are the ones that hold the keys that you must pass through if you were going to make it into dental school or medical school. And Professor Shealy at Dickinson College was my gatekeeper. And so I decided to take organic chemistry over the summer because I wanted to concentrate completely on taking that one subject and not have any other subjects to distract me at the time. And so that meant, in the summer of 72, that I ate, drank, and slept organic chemistry all summer. We had a test every week. We had class every day for about two to three hours. Then we had lab every day for about two to three hours. And the rest of the time, my nose was in my book. You can ask my wife that because we were dating at the time and she didn't see much of me that whole summer. I remember the first test that I took on organic chemistry. I had studied till my brain was about fried, sat down and took that test. He passed out the papers about seven pages stapled together and it was a hard test. And they are, they are spoiled, organic chemistry professors, because they get the cream of the crop and they're, anybody that's trying to make it into medical school, they're going to be in that class and there was about 38 in my class. And by the time I was done with that test, I, there was nothing left. I was just totally wasted. Handed it in, shook up, walked out of that class, and a couple days later, he came in with a pack of tests in his hand. Without saying a word, he went around to each, each classmate, and he just flopped the test down on their, paper, on their desk. Without saying a word, he walked up to the board, and he started writing. I remember the first thing I saw when he dropped the test on, on my paper down was the 84 at the top of the paper. And then I started seeing all these red marks all over my test. I mean, it was like there, there wasn't anything that I had put down there that was right. I mean, he had X's over this and explanation points and little notes, and he just dissected my test. He went up and he wrote on the board, and I looked up at the board what he was writing. He wrote 84-1, he wrote... 72-1, he wrote 65-1, he wrote all the way down to 23-1. And I realized, I was looking at the board, he's writing the grade distribution of the class. And my 84 started to look pretty good to me when I was looking down at my paper. <laughs> and then he turned around, it was the first thing he said, he looked at the class and he said, I'm really disappointed in the way this class did for this test today. He said, uh, I thought I designed a fair test and I had taught the material well, he said, nobody did very well in this class. He said, yes, I am grading this on a curve, to which my heart just jumped out of my chest. 
And he said, there's one A in the class and a few Bs and a bunch of Cs and a couple Ds and an F. And he says, you guys can figure out who you are. And then he went on teaching the class that day. Never said another thing about it. Well, by the end of the semester, I had gotten an A in organic chemistry. And it was because Dr. Shealy graded on a curve. I'm here to tell you today that the message that Jesus gives to Nicodemus is that God does not grade on a curve. He demands absolute perfection. He demands that you get 100% on his test if you're going to make it into heaven. The difference is God sits down and he takes the test for you. And he scores 100% on the test for you. And it's your job to trust him. Trust him by faith. Put your name at the top of that test and hand it in. Because you can't do it on your own. And you will not be able to do it on your own. And that's what the message is today. So we're going to read now today. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Well, today we meet a man in the scriptures who by human standards, by today's standards, would be considered a good man. And I want you to observe Nicodemus, the man, observe his curriculum vitae, his resume, as he applies for the job of a good man. First thing we read is he's a Pharisee. This means that Nicodemus was one of 6,000 pious Jewish men who were separated ones who desired, truly desired to keep over 600 laws that were added by tradition. When a rabbi would read and interpret scripture, he would often add laws, ideas that he had enjoined to what the scripture was saying. And that became law. It wasn't God's law. It was man's law. But it was to try to help you to somehow live up to the standard of God's laws. And so 600 laws were added by tradition. And the keeping of them, they felt, made you holy. If you could keep these laws, if you could do these things, that would make you holy. They were the most rigorous, religiously observant people, these Pharisees, in all of Israel. The Talmud says, if only two people make it into heaven when they die, one of them is sure to be a Pharisee. And so they were respected among the people as self-appointed guardians of the law. They would be kind of the Western idea of a monk, if you think about it. They weren't celibate. They didn't live in monasteries, but they were separated. They were set apart. They observed strict dietary laws and all sorts of, of avoidance of things. If you were a Pavarazzi, and you think about all the stuff that we read about, the Pavarazzi catches the... The, uh, the politicians or the, um, uh, the famous people out in Hollywood, everything. And they catch them in everything. If you would follow Nicodemus around and you had your list of 600 laws, you would never be able to take a picture of Nicodemus. It was, he was like Saul of Tarsus who claimed that he was blameless concerning the law. You wouldn't be able to catch him eating an egg laid by a chicken on the Sabbath day. Because that chicken had sinned having worked on the Sabbath day laying that, and you're never catching doing that. 
You'd never catch him looking at himself in the mirror on the Sabbath day because he would be tempted to pull out a gray hair if he saw a gray hair in the mirror. And so it would be wrong to do that work, that labor on the Sabbath day, pulling out that gray hair. And it would be wrong to even look in a mirror on the, on the Sabbath day. Here's an interesting dental one that was one of their laws. Now, vinegar was, uh, had medicinal agencies, they felt, had medicinal use. You could swallow vinegar on the Sabbath day, but you couldn't gargle with it on the Sabbath day because that would be doing some work on the Sabbath day. You'd never catch Nicodemus doing that on the Sabbath day if you were a Pavarazzi. He was blameless concerning the law, like Saul of Tarsus. Well, they observe weekly fastings, multiple daily prayers. They carefully tithe 10% of all their goods. That would mean the mint and cumin that they talked about, their spices. If he had 10 mint plants, one of those mint he would have taken and he would have given the money for uh, the temple or for the synagogue, he would tithe 10%. So they taught in the synagogues. They were more observant, more religiously rigorous and holy based on these kind of standards than I would say anyone in this room could stand up to that level. And that becomes important when we consider the commentary that follows here and what happens in this conversation. Secondly, we find out that he is a member of the Jewish ruling council, it says here. That would mean he is in the Sanhedrin. And that meant he was one of 70 men who presided over by the high priest who would govern all the Jewish nation. That would mean all three forms of government, the judicial, the administrative, and the legislative branches of government were all tied into those 70 men. That would mean that he was a respected, powerful man. And they would be the go-between between the Romans, who were the ultimate authority over them, who had basically delegated everything to them to, in the running of the country. They would make laws. They would judge incidents. They would observe and judge heresies. They would enact sentences. And sometimes they were limited in their sentences. They couldn't kill Christ. That's why they had to appeal to the Roman authorities. But in most cases, they ran the country. And he was one of these 70 men. In addition to that, he was Israel's teacher. The Greek here indicates that Nicodemus was probably the most illustrious teacher of all Israel. In, in verse 10, Jesus says, What you are the teacher of Israel, meaning the number one teacher of Israel. He would rate right up there with Gamaliel who would be Paul's teacher. Paul went to the University of Gamaliel. Well, many would go to the University of Nicodemus, and it would be just as high profile. And so he was an important person in the, the state of things in Israel. In addition to that, he was a wealthy man. In John chapter 19, verses 38 to 40, we have Nicodemus and another man, Joseph of Arimathea. And remember, they begged the body of Christ and they took it down off the cross, and they prepared it for burial, and it was Nicodemus that provided myrrh and aloe, expensive spices, particularly myrrh, 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe, and that would, that would show that he was a wealthy man. There weren't very many people in the nation of Israel that could have come up with that kind of amount of spices, and he was able to do that. So Nicodemus was a wealthy politically powerful, totally religiously observant, 
respected, separated, devout Jewish leader. He was a rabbi, a teacher of the scriptures, a sincere man. He was a good man by all human standards who came to Jesus by night. And that's the kind of man that comes to Jesus at night. And then Nicodemus relates the conclusion derived by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Remember the Pharisees had gone out to see John the Baptist and they were examining why he was here. And they asked him all kinds of questions. Are you the Messiah? Are you that prophet? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm just a voice in the wilderness. Prepare, your way, prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. Well, they would, these would be the same individuals that when he would speak of and he would say, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Who's the we? Well, that's the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. And why do they know that? Because no one could do the things that you were doing except God be with him. And that was the miracles he was speaking about, the miraculous signs that he was doing in Jerusalem. In fact, if you look up at verse 23 of the chapter before, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing. John only talks about the turning the water into wine in John uh, chapter 2, but we see also he's pointing out the fact that there were a lot of other miracles going on in, in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, and Christ was probably healing, casting out demons, doing all kinds of things. And so Nicodemus comes with a pretty good attitude about Christ, really, when he comes at night. He comes and he says, we know you're a teacher come from God. He's probably thinking this is the first prophet of God for 400 years. And he's been verified by God that he is helped by God. And so he sees him as someone who is being helped along in his teaching ministry. We know you're a teacher come from God. What's far more significant than that, and Jesus is going to demonstrate that to him and show him soon, that he is far more than a teacher whom God is helping in his teaching ministry. Jesus has not come from God to teach, but he, is, but he is God come to teach. He's not a teacher who's come from God to teach, but he is God himself come to teach man and to do far more than just teach man. And he's going to show him that his thoughts about him are a lot more radical than what he really was thinking originally. Jesus is going to send him straight in this. Nicodemus hasn't even begun to guess the real reason why Jesus is here. So in thinking about this type of man, what Nicodemus represents in this society, that it was a very highly religious society, Nicodemus stands at the top of this society, the pinnacle of this religious society. We're going to see when we look in the next chapter, and we've looked at this in the past, he's going to talk to a woman at a well. She stands at the very bottom of the society. But they both stand on level ground. They both need to be born from above. He's going to show them that in this chapter and the next chapter. She is a Samaritan, a half-breed, and she's at the bottom rung of the Samaritans, this woman at the well. So Jesus' first words to Nicodemus, he says, Truly I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we see this issue, this idea of the new birth. In John 2, verses 23 to 25, we see an emphasis on the word man. I want you to read that again with me. It says in verse 24, But Jesus would not trust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. And remember when John wrote the book of John, 
He didn't write it in chapters and verses. He just wrote the whole book. And so it's later on they were added in. And so the thought continues right on through that John is trying to show us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is God. We don't want to miss that anywhere. And we have to review that thought because he ends the book of John and he says, these things have I written unto you that, that um, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He did it. Many other miraculous signs are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. So here he sees this man, Nicodemus, coming out to see him at night and he reads his heart. He understands exactly what's going on in the mind and the soul of Nicodemus. And though Nicodemus may be coming out with lots of different questions and different reasons for being there that night, Nicodemus goes right, he, Christ goes right to the heart of Nicodemus' issues. We see earlier in John chapter 2 when he met a man named Nathaniel and he read his heart. Remember that story when Philip came to get Nathaniel and Nathaniel had been all by himself under a fig tree. Probably praying. I don't think it's a big um, um, ex- a stretch of the imagination to imagine that Nathaniel, who was called by Christ a man in whom there was no guile, no falseness, that he was probably out there praying. He was probably meditating on who is this one that John the Baptist is baptizing and saying, get ready for the coming of the Lord. He's coming. He's here. Show me who he is, Lord. He's all by himself, just him and God and no one else. And here comes Philip. He says, we found him. We found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel, who's probably studied in the scriptures, he looks back through the scriptures and he says, Nazareth. Nope, I don't see anything about Nazareth, just Bethlehem. I, don't, I can't see how this one would be. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he, he says, come and see. So he comes and he says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And he says, How do you know me? He said, I saw you when you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. He sees his heart. And all of a sudden, in Nathaniel's heart, all the questions he had about Bethlehem, about Nazareth, they're gone. He says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Just like that, his thinking is turned completely around. Well, here comes Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, now he has his heart red. Just like the woman at the well in the next chapter. She has her heart red. Go call your husband. And it was all about her husbands, the many of them that, she, that he's had, that she's had. Well, Nicodemus, he's totally floored. He's talking to him and he says, everything you are, Nicodemus, all you have done up to now means nothing. Nicodemus, you're missing a crucial, critical element in your life, your relationship with God. You can't enter, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you were born from above. It's a second spiritual birth. So he uses this kind of imagery. The imagery that you wouldn't be if you weren't born and you wouldn't be in the kingdom of God unless you were born a second time. He says, Nicodemus, you need to have a new beginning. So Jesus is saying we're laboring in a position where we're alienated from God. We're separated from God. And we need a spiritual birth, almost like a complete new beginning. And we should be thinking about that today as we read this. Because this is God's message for us today. This is God's word. And everybody needs to know this. 
And that's what happened to Saul of Tarsus when he thought he was living everything that he could do on his way to heaven, surely. And he was stopped on the road to Damascus, and he found out who Christ really was. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He knew he was speaking to God. Now he was going to find out who the Lord was. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And right then and there, he was born from above. His eyes were open, and he knew he was completely on the wrong side of the fence. Everything he thought he had done up to that point. He says there in uh, Philippians chapter 3, all my works, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, touching the law, blameless. He says I was a Hebrew of the Hebrew. I was circumcised the eighth day. All those things he thought they were assets. He found, found out they were liabilities in his assets and liability sheet. And he found out that he was on the wrong side of the fence. Well, that's where Nicodemus is. And he's totally floored. He came with many questions, but he was confident he was going to heaven because he was certainly one of those ones that would make it into heaven because of all the things he had done. Confused, he thinks in physical, literalistic terms while Christ is speaking spiritually. And so he says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Surely cannot enter a second time in his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, and he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And so we have this commentary now where he is going into a little bit more detail, and he's talking about the water and the Spirit. At this point, I have to tell you, there are at least five different interpretations. <laughs> Larry's back there laughing. We've been talking about this. Of, of the water and the spirit. And the first one, I, and I want to talk about a couple of them here. I want to talk at least about three of them. But there's at least five different interpretations. So Jesus is illuminating more, more uh, giving more definition to what he means by being born again. And he's illuminated by saying you must be born of water and the spirit. Now a misinterpretation, but an interpretation that is given by a lot of churches today, uh, is, is, brings about this idea of, of baptismal regeneration. And that's in your outline here. And regeneration means new birth. So they come with the idea, the, the thought is, certainly John the Baptist baptized by water, with water. And today we are taught in the New Testament that we are to baptize with water. And John the Baptist even says, I baptize with water, but one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so there's certainly a Holy Spirit baptism. Thus the thinking, you must be born of water, baptism by water, and baptism by the Spirit. Well, this is not what this is talking about at all. First of all, one of the prime rules of hermeneutics is you have to interpret the Scripture in its context. And there's nothing that's being said here about baptism at all. That's imported with our own thinking into this. But there's nothing, John Baptist, or I mean, uh, Nicodemus isn't talking about baptism at all. And neither is Jesus. So that's, that's a thought that we bring into this. And if it were true that you needed to be baptized by water in order to be born again, if that's what Jesus is saying, that would contradict many other scriptures. Not the least of which is uh, in the, chapter, uh, the chapter in Luke that talks about the thief on the cross. And that's what I have in your outline. If you want to know everything that needs to be done to be born again, look at the thief on the cross. He performed everything that needed to be done. He said, I justly, we justly, he's talking to the other thief, we justly deserve to be here. So he recognized he was a sinner and he was lost. He said, but this one has done nothing, speaking of Christ, and he has recognized in his innocence and purity before God. And then he says, would you remember me when you come into your father's kingdom? 
And so he recognizes that he is not speaking to just a good person. He is speaking to the Son of God. And if there was any hope at all for this man who was on the cross hanging next to Jesus, it would be because Jesus remembers him because he would have the ability to intercede for him and substitute for him. And certainly he didn't know all his theology, but he knew if he put his trust in this one that hung next to him on the cross, there would be maybe hope. He got far more than hope that day because Jesus did not say to him, I will remember you. He said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. There was no baptism. There was no works. There was no joining a church. There was no taking communion. There was no singing in the choir and getting a perfect attendance pin. All the things that one would think that one needs to do in order to be a Christian, none of those things were done. Now, I'm not saying the baptism is irrelevant, but it is what you do after you become a Christian, after you're saved. It is a natural consequence and outworking of your faith, but not what is required to be a Christian. I wouldn't want anybody to trust in their baptism or trust in their church membership or trust in their communion or trust in their perfect attendance pins. The only one you can trust in is Christ. It's a pretty simple thing. It is is very difficult on our egos because you have to empty yourself of self and completely trust in Christ. 100% for the work that he has done on the cross. Well, a second interpretation is live birth involves a breaking of the water. Now here we look at the context, and we say the context here then is Nicodemus has just said, how can a man be born a second time from his mother's, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born a second time? So the context, the argument in this, in this discussion, which is a much more reasonable one at least compared to the one on the uh, water baptism, is that, We're talking about two different births. One, a physical birth from a mother's womb and coming out of a sack of water. And certainly Nicodemus would have understood this because in the time where he lived 2,000 years ago, you didn't go to the hospital to have your babies. Moms had their babies in the living room. And they saw lots of animals in that agrarian society, that farming society, having their, their sheep and their cattle right out in the fields. And there was always coming out of a sack of water. And so the argument in this particular one is you must be born first physically and then spiritually. You don't have anything to do with your physical birth and you don't have anything to do with your spiritual birth. You can't can't, um, do anything in order to be born, but you are physically born from a sack of water and you can't do something to work your way into heaven. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's not an unreasonable um, argument, but there is probably a better argument. And the third one is that Nicodemus is not such an idiot to be thinking that he's going to somehow get into his mother's womb a second time. So he is using hyperbole on this, and he's basically saying this is impossible. How is it possible for a man to be born from above? I don't understand how this can be done. And Jesus, the context then would be going back to the verse before, you must be born again, is saying you must be born of the water. And he's referring here to the cleansing water of the word of God. You must be born of the water of the word of God applied to your life by the spirit of God. And so this is all talking about the spiritual new birth. 
that would be from the verse before, and that would be the context in your hermeneutical examination. And we want to look at a couple verses here. Water is often used as a metaphor, then, for the written word of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, Christ gave himself for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? In John 15.3, Jesus said, You are clean already because of the word I have spoken to you. And finally, James 1.18 cites the scriptures as a channel through which the new birth takes place. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. So the water would represent the word of God. You must be born of the word of God as applied to your life by the Holy Spirit. And that, I think, is a better interpretation of this particular scripture where he said you must be born again. And then he says, flesh gives birth to flesh. In other words, the natural man is only ever going to give birth to the other natural men. You can't be born of the flesh and make it into, the he- and make it into heaven. You must be born of the Holy Spirit, opening your blind eyes and your dead heart uh, to the work of Christ that, he, that occurred on the cross. And so he says then, the wind blows wherever it pleases, You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, why shouldn't Nicodemus be surprised? He was Israel's teacher. He was quite familiar with the Old Testament. And there I give you some verses. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. It's not of works. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. I will sprinkle you with clean water. And the idea is the water of the word. And then other verses I have, 1 Samuel and Jeremiah. In Psalm 51.5, David said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There's no way that we are going to make it into heaven on our own works because we are, we are sinners. And then he says, The wind blows and we understand the wind, yet it is a mystery. See, Nicodemus is thinking, I've got to see it to believe it. And Jesus used the analogy of the wind. He says, Show me the wind. And Nicodemus would go, well, you can see the leaves blowing, but that's not the wind. That's just the effect of the wind. Show me the wind. I guess you don't have to see it to believe it because you believe there's wind. You know there's wind, and yet you can't see the wind. It's a mystery. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. How about, is that true today? 2,000 years later, they go, well, if it goes this way, we're going to get two inches of snow. And if it goes this way, we're going to get 12 inches of snow. And you get up the next morning, it doesn't snow at all. You don't have any idea where it's going or where it's coming from. You can't predict it. That's the way it is with the Spirit. And it's interesting, there's a, a, a kind of a play on words here because the word pneumos is the word spirit. It's the breath of God, and it also means wind. So it's the same word used in the Greek. And Nicodemus would certainly understand that. So the Spirit does as it pleases. Its operation is sovereign, incomprehensible, and mysterious. To Nicodemus, who had been brought up to believe a person could and should save himself by perfect obedience to the law of Moses and the laws added by tradition, this seemed impossible to believe. He, like Paul, believed you could work your way into heaven. The sovereign work of salvation is all of God and none of self. It's hard to grasp. You have nothing to do with your first birth, and you have nothing to do with your second. Titus 3.5 says he saves us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. As I said before, God doesn't grade on a curve, and we are far from righteous. Listen to a bookmark I made for myself. I keep it in my Bible. It's, it, on the back of it, I have about 35 references and, but I come to a conclusion on the front. I said, therefore, man has a condition. He is dead in trespass and sins, not sick. He is lost, not wayward. He is blind, not nearsighted. He is a child of wrath, not innocent. 
He is a bondservant of sin, not free. He has gone astray, not just a little off course. He is futile in his thinking, has a darkened understanding, and is separated from the life of God. He needs a new heart, for his heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. He must be saved, not reformed. He must be born again, not turn over a new leaf. As the pastor says, the only thing we bring to the table in our salvation experiences is our sin. Man is totally depraved. He's not absolutely depraved. He's not as bad as possible or as evil as he can be, but he is totally depraved. Meaning, uh, Swindoll talks about the fact, if, if depravity is blue, if you cut me anywhere, I'd be blue anywhere. If you cut my heart open, it'll be blue. If you cut my brain open, it'll be blue. I'll be blue all the way through. Boyce talks about the fact of painting the pump. Talks about the idea of, of uh, a pump, an old rusty pump on top of a contaminated well. And he said, you can paint the pump, you can put a gold handle on the pump, you can put a plaque on the pump and elevate the pump, but when you pump the pump, out comes contaminated water. That's all that it has that you're pumping out. And that's our heart. It's deceitful above all things, desperately. We, can, we must be born from above. We must be born by the Spirit of God if we're going to know Christ, if we're going to know God, if we're ever going to have a relationship. And that's what he was saying to Nicodemus. It really comes down to, an, to a... a uh, an issue of trust. You know, Nicodemus is probably, there's this conversation probably went on for quite a while and you can read the whole thing in like two minutes. And Nicodemus is probably saying, I just can't understand what's going to happen to me if I become a believer. And you hear that conversation often today. People will ask you, what's going to happen to me if I become a believer? And God works in different people's lives differently. He works in individuals' lives individually. Everyone is going to have a different way that they come to understand Christ and they come to understand who he is. But they all have the same experience and that they come to believe that Christ is their Savior and he has died for their sins. And he could say to Nicodemus, you know, I could try to lay this all out for you, but it really comes down to a matter of trust. Just trusting that God is, loves you and God is a good God and he can be trusted. He's the kind of individual that can be trusted. Well, now I'm going to go to the next page in my outline, which is different than yours, but Nicodemus, without spiritual understanding, is still lost because it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, the, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And then we have an indictment from Christ, and he says, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. We've looked at verses that Nicodemus should understand if he would have had the Spirit within him opening his understanding. Even from the beginning, the work of God is an inside job. Religion can blind a man from reality. And you have people that have, you talk to sometimes, and they say, I tried religion one time, but it didn't work out for me. And you know, when I hear that, I say, well, it, it, it's perfectly understandable to me because I hate religion. Religion is all the false isms and stuff that you can do even in a Christian church that would give you the confidence in formalism, in legalism that would make you think that you are right with God because you do these things and they have nothing to do with a, their personal relationship with, with God through Christ. And that's what, what Jesus is really going to teach Nicodemus here. He says we and I asked the question, what is, who is we? He says, we testify to what we've seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Who's the we? 
Well, certainly the Old Testament would be the we, all the prophets of old that had spoken. The disciples that were speaking, they would testify. John the Baptist had been speaking. We testify to what we know. And he says to him, um, so I have down the prophets as your outline blank here. Israel's teacher should know these things. Salvation is not from religion. It's not from works. It's from having a personal relationship with the Son of God who would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Well, Nicodemus thought he understood things. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Surely the Messiah would come from their ranks. They were looking for a physical kingdom. He would overthrow the Roman rule and lead his people to prosperity. They would have manna every day, just like Moses gave them in the wilderness. A physical kingdom was anticipated, not a spiritual one. He didn't understand because he didn't believe. Understanding comes after believing. Seeing is not always believing, but believing is always seeing. We see that in John chapter three, or John chapter six. He he healed them on the hillside. He fed the five thousand, so probably fifteen thousand with women and children. The next day, he said, you're following me not because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate your bread and you had your fill. And you're here another day because you want to get fed again. That's the only reason you're following me. They said, show us a sign. He said, I fed, the, I fed everyone on the hillside. I, I healed all the sick. You're here only because you just want to get fed again. You're looking for another sign. See, seeing is not always believing. But the end of that chapter, after he had spoken on the sovereignty of God and said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, most of his disciples, those that were following him, left. He said to his disciples, are you going to also leave too? And Peter said, where would we go? He said, you have the words of eternal life. He said, we believe and know that you are the Son of God. You're the Holy One of God. We believe and know. See, believing is seeing. Seeing is not always believing, but believing is always seeing. Well, Jesus has rebuked Nicodemus. He has spoken of things that has happened here on earth. Individuals have been born from above, right in front of him. John the Baptist has declared him. The disciples have followed him. These are all things that are on earth. Yet Nicodemus does not yet believe. At this point, Nicodemus' questions are ended, and he closes his mouth and Christ goes from a discussion to a discourse now on heavenly things. It may be that Nicodemus has heard him now for the first time and is listening. The answer to unbelief is to believe. Heavenly things, those whose conception and origin are so majestic and transcendent, they would never have occurred to man's finite mind. God's eternal plan of redemption of mankind by sending his son into the world. Now he speaks of heavenly things and he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. He's really saying to Nicodemus, and I am that one. And I'm going to unravel the confusion that you have, if you but listen now. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. It's kind of a confusing, cryptic thing for us when we read it today, but this would have been right up Nicodemus's alley. He understood who the Son of Man was claiming to be in the Old Testament because he was an Old Testament scholar. And the Son of Man comes from, comes from Daniel chapter 7, and it talks about Israel's Messiah, and they were all looking forward to Israel's Messiah to come. And so Nicodemus would click right in on the words when he was saying the Son of Man. It's the language of the Bible. Jesus claims to be the Son of Man. There in Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of the end of days, judgment days. The ancient of days is God on the throne. And the Son of Man is King Messiah who is led into his presence. And there he is given glory, honor, and a kingdom. And every Jewish scholar 
Every Jewish man knew about this promise. And Jesus says, I'm not just a teacher who God is helping in his teaching ministry, but I am, in fact, this one, the Son of Man. You know, sometimes you hear people, they talk about the fact that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Well, he's claiming to be the Messiah here. And you'll see very clearly in the next chapter when he's speaking to the woman at the well, and she says, I know one day Messiah is going to come. He's going to tell us all things. He says, no need to wait. He said, I'm talking to you right now. I am the Messiah. Clearly throughout scriptures, he claims to be the Son of Man. He claims to be this one, this Messiah. I have in your reality, every religion in the world is man's attempt to crawl out of his natural box and find God. You think about it, I, I, I've had this analogy I've used before. It's like if you grew up in a garage, the garage was closed, never had any windows in the garage, you were born in the garage, you lived in the garage, you'd have no way of knowing what's outside the garage. That's like man in their natural world that we live in on earth. And it takes the supernatural to come into the world to be able to explain and tell us what God's purpose is for our lives. Did God ever do that? One time, and that was in Christ, when he says, the Son of Man came from heaven to show us these things. He said, only one who came from heaven. You can look at all the other religions. You know, we have um, Mary Baker Eddy and Patterson Grover Fry says, if you read Science and Health and Key to the scriptures, you'll crawl out of your natural box and find God. Judge Rutherford and Professor Russell say, if you do this or that, you'll become God. The Buddha says, if you take some porridge and you rub it, you'll find God. You sit under a tree and you find nirvana and proof, you'll find God. The Muhammadan says, if you pray on your knees three times and face Mecca, you'll find God. You live in this time and space natural box. And outside the box is the supernatural, and that's where God is. Can man pop out of his box and find God and then come back into his natural box and tell man what it's all about? No, he can't. So God has to do that. And he does that. And that's what he's saying here. No one is ever going into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Hebrews 1, 2, God came into our natural world to provide a way. Hebrews 1 says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. And now he gives a prediction of his own death. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And he goes back to Numbers 21, and Nicodemus would know all about this. We have to read about it. We have to go back and, and, and remember how the Israelites were wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and during that time, they started complaining and bellyaching about Moses and about God and he had led them out here and they were going to all die out here and they were all frustrated and they were sinning against God and they weren't trusting God. And God said, all right, I'm going to judge you for that. It's worthy of my judgment. And he sent snakes into the camp. If you were bit by a snake, you were going to die and there was no hope for you. You were condemned. And so what happened is the Israelites saw everybody dying and they repented. They said, you you know, we've sinned against God. We've sinned against you, Moses. Please go and have mercy and ask God to have mercy on us. And so Moses, as an intercessor, goes to God and he said, have mercy. And God said, I want you to put up a standard, a pole in the middle of the camp on the basis of the repentance. And, I said, and he said, I want you to put a brazen serpent on that. And anyone who looks at that serpent, looks at that snake, they're going to live. And if you were way outside the camp, you could, there were a million in that camp, you might have to be carried you might have to crawl, you might have to walk, but your only hope of life 
was not going to put a salve on it, not try to work your way out of this, not try to figure out how to get healed from this. You had to get to that pole and you had to look at that snake, that, that snake on the, that standard on that pole, that snake, and then you'd live. It didn't matter how far gone you were. If you were just bit, if you were bit yesterday or two days and you were almost dead, but you, if you looked, you lived. You'd be saved. And he said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he's talking about the cross now. He's talking about look and live at Christ on the cross. The Son of Man had come for a purpose, and it wasn't just to teach, but it was that he would die, and he would go to the cross, and he would be lifted up. It was a prediction of his own death. So why did he have to die? Why must he be lifted up? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Hebrews 9.22. Here we have the intersection of God's love and God's justice. The wages of sin is death. And the cross is the intersection of the justice of God and the mercy of God. We've heard that before many times here. But it's a picture of the girl who's brought before the judge. And she's had some traffic violation or something. And, and the, the judge uh, says guilty to her. And he brings down the gavel. And he says, $500 fine. And then the judge does something very different. He stands up, and he takes off his robe, and he goes around to the front of the stand, and he pays the fine. He gets out his wallet, and he takes out his hard-earned money, and he pays the fine, gives it to the clerk. And then he leads his daughter off the stage. And it's a picture of the just who is a the judge who is a just judge, and he must condemn what she has done, but because he is her father, he pays the actual price. It's a picture of Christ who comes, and he must, God must bring judgment on our sin, and the wages of sin is death, and there he goes to the cross, and he pays for that on our place, and if we but look and live, we'll have life. What does it mean to believe in Christ? to trust, to put your whole weight upon, to stretch yourself out upon him. Years ago, a missionary named John Payton went to New, New Hebrides Island and he began translating the Bible. And he came to the word believe and he didn't have a word for believe. And so he was having difficulty with this part of the translation. And one day he was out hunting. I like this part of the story. He was out hunting with one of his native friends and they shot a deer. doesn't say in the story who shot the deer, so I, I don't have that whole part uh, down in my mind, but one of them shot the deer, and so they put it on a pole, and they packed it out, and they hiked it all the way out to his beach house, and there, when they finally laid down the deer, the native flopped down on the, the chaise lounge chair, or whatever that was on the porch, and he said, it's so good to just stretch out here upon this, upon this chair, and John Payton jumped up, and he said, that's the word I've been looking for, for believe, and in the translation to the New Hebrides natives, he wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever stretches himself out upon him, puts all his weight upon him, will have eternal life. And that's the word for believe here. Believe that God is the loving Father Christ said he is. And it says that throughout the scriptures, Ephesians says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. When we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Believe that God is a loving Father, Christ said he is, and that Jesus is God. And that all he said was true about your sin, about his provision, about his person. To believe is not just saying we know you come from God, 
That's what Nicodemus said. It's putting your life, your trust in his hands. He must be crucified. He must be lifted up. The crucifixion is not a remedy. It is the only possible remedy for sin. We see that in Mark 8.31, where he began to tell his disciples, hey, he must go to Jerusalem, and he must suffer at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees, and he must go to the cross, and then he must rise again. Well, John 3.16, an indescribable, agape, unconditional love of mankind, his creation, not just the Jews, as Nicodemus would have thought, but the world, so much that he gave as over unto death his one and only son. Not only that man might be saved, that man, but that man would be saved. He so loved, it's an infinite love and action reaching back to eternity past, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and coming to fruition in the fullness of time in Bethlehem and at the cross. The world speaks of men from every tribe and nation, not only Jews, but Gentiles. Even Samaritans. How would Nicodemus see the world, the haves and the have-nots, the Jews and the Gentiles, the chosen ones, the elect, the seed of Abraham, and literally that his son, his only begotten, he gave as unto death. Romans 8.22 says, Who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? His one and only son, the monogamies, the prime one of God, the unique one, Whoever believes, true belief versus false belief should not perish. And he's not speaking of physical life, physical annihilation, but condemnation, eternal spiritual separation. And so here we see not only what God is doing, but the motivation. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, verses 17 and 18, he was not sent to condemn but to save. His coming separated those who were condemned already from those who would come to the light. The great white throne judgment is the execution of the sentence, but here really is the trial and the verdict. His mission was salvation, but the effect of his life was judgment. John 1, 9 says he was light that gives light to every man, yet his own did not receive him, it says there, further in that same chapter of John chapter 1. He does not take upon himself the function of a judge Yet his words are truth and light, revealing the hidden motives and darkest secrets of man and awakening those who are spiritually blind to salvation. Unbelief is a result of people loving their sin. Unbelief is not a matter of understanding. Romans 1 shows that. It's unbelief because you love your sin. Romans 1.32 says, Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Finally, in verse 20, men hide under their sin like the night insects, like the roaches that run from the light. The light has come into the world, but men run from the light because they love their sin. And then verse 21, but whosoever lives by the truth comes to the light so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done through God. It's an invitation, come to the light, like the plant in the window, leaning towards the light. How can love and condemnation stand together? Listen, a man goes to the Louvre, he looks at the paintings and then he stops by the curator and he says, you know, I don't really think so much of your paintings. The curator says to the man, these paintings are not on trial. You are on trial. If someone can look at Christ and not see the love of God and what he did on the cross for our sins, heaven help you. What are you going to do with Christ? I want to end with just salvation is of the Lord. It's 100% his work from beginning to end. That is why the Son of Man must be lifted up. Religion can blind a man from reality. Salvation is only through a relationship with the Son by faith. John 3 teaches us not only what God is doing, 
that he sent his son, the son of man, to take on humanity so that he can go to the cross and be our substitute for sin, but also the motivation God so loved that he gave. Man is born spiritually dead. Don't ever get over the fact that you are spiritually dead. You must be born again. Well, Nicodemus, the early church commentators tell us that he was commonly known that Nicodemus did become a believer and that he has a large house in Jerusalem and that was one of the early meeting places of the church there in Jerusalem. And in Matthew 27, 22, it tells the story of Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate says these words, What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Consider the brazen serpent in the wilderness once more. Everyone bitten was under judgment. They were condemned already. They had no promise of tomorrow. There was only, their only hope was to look now at the brazen serpent on the pole. This Old Testament incident represented Christ on the cross, lifted up. And you know, you might think about the fact that he was, he, in the analogy there, he says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. And you might think there's a discontinuity here in this analogy because a serpent in the Old Testament was often looked upon as something bad, something evil. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21, you can put this in your margin of your Bible, it says, He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He became our sin. He was evil on the cross. And God looked down upon our sin that was put upon Him, not figuratively, but actually, not symbolically, but really put upon Him. And He judged that. And the wages of sin was death. And it wasn't just physical death, but it was separation from the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He became our sin that we might become his righteousness. The offer is still there today on the table. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Won't you look and live? Well, my last thing, I have to read a poem. I always make up a poem when I do a message. I made this up about a week ago. And so this is a poem by Nicodemus. I knew a man some years ago who spoke of things I did not know. I came to him at dark of night, and what I found was God's pure light. He told me all the good I've done, the rules I'd kept, the baits I'd won, were worthless. This, he said, was true. My only hope, be born anew. Confused, I asked how this could be. It was impossible to me. A teacher come from God, and yet... Unlike no one before I'd met. His words poured out like water now, and beads of sweat upon his brow. He said it was the Father's plan that he should come, the Son of Man, to do a work we could not do, that we might have this birth anew. As Moses lifted up the snake, he'd pay the debt our sin did make. For God, he said, did us so love, he sent the Spirit like a dove in, to work in hearts both big and small that we might trust in him for all. So that dark night, my heart was stirred. I pondered each and every word. Could it be so that all I'd heard was from the very living word? Soon I would see what he had said, a crown of thorns upon his head. His blood did fall upon the ground. And lifted up, he wore my crown. I looked upon my stricken Lord, 
The words he spoke struck like a chord. The serpent high upon a pole paid all my sin. I was made whole. And now I finally understand that I could never be so good to stand before the Holy One except I trusted in his Son. And so I speak to you today, look to the Son, do not delay, for all your works like mine are waste. Believe the gift of life. Make haste. He is the Son of Man, this one, Jesus his name, the Father's Son. This always was the Father's plan. Trust him alone. Be born again. Thank you. Yes, I can. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the simple word of God that reveals the mind of God that we could never understand on our own. For we are fallen creatures and we all admit, Lord, that we are sinners. And that we are without hope except for the one that was lifted up upon that tree 2,000 years ago on our behalf, that he indeed became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the greatest trade that ever could have occurred in the history of time. Our sin traded for his righteousness, that we might stand before you one day and not claim any works that we have done cause us to deserve to stand in your holy presence but we have trusted only in the work of your Son who paid it all on Calvary's cross on our behalf that we may have life and that we might have it abundantly because of his work. In Jesus' name.